0: Hello, I'm Christopher Wiese with CFA Institute. I'm here today with Ludovic Philippou, Assistant Professor of Finance at the University of Amsterdam. Ludovic's research in private equities caught the attention of both his academic peers and professional investors around the globe. He joins us today to talk about performance measurement in private equity funds. Ludovic, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Perhaps a good place to start would be uh, uh, regarding IRR in particular, and a lot of your research you've talked about IRR as being inadequate as a measure in private equity and uh, of course it's one of the most prominently featured statistics in any given uh, prospectus so what would you say about IRR? The
1: the first thing is a lot of people think uh, an IRR is the rate of return and so compare that number to uh, the average rate of return of the stock markets or uh, on bonds or whatever and then get extremely excited because 40% is a lot of money, uh, or 30 or 50. And they forget what IR is, really is and what it assumes, and, um, and, and they can sometimes see that, that IR is not a rate of return because if you see an IR of 40%, it would mean you would have doubled your money uh, every two years. So if a fund kept your money for, for like four years on average, uh, then that would mean that they would have returned to you a multiple of, um, of 4. Uh, and then when you look at the multiple, then the multiple is like 2 or something. So it, it's just not possible. It's, uh, it, it doesn't matter but sh- But that tells you that it should ring a bell that this IR is not a rate of return. Um, and the main problem is that uh, it assumes that you can reinvest intermediary cash flows at the IR rate. So what it says is, if a fund gives you $100 million back after one year, uh, these $100 million were put at work at 40% uh, per year, which is something that is just not possible. And funds can take advantage of that. Uh, they, I don't know if they do it or to which extent they do it, but they could uh, take advantage of that by paying very early in fund's life some large dividends uh, in order to just boost some very high IR and then investors my. Get confused uh, thinking, oh, that's a rate of return, and that looks very good. Um, when in fact, uh, you know, it's not. So they need to be very careful uh, when uh, they, they, they see IRs. These are not rate of returns. And for for multiples, the main problem is, uh, I come across lots of investors that say, oh, I'm very happy with my private equity investment because I doubled my money. And and then I ask them, okay, how, how long did it take you on average? How, how long did they keep? Your your cash uh, for, and um, investor says, well, I don't know. It's very hard to know because they always take money from me at different points in time, give money back. I have no clue like how long on average I keep my money for. I guess five years, six years. I don't know. And then, then I say, you know, if if you would have put your money in the S and P 500 over the last 20, 25 years, your money would have been doubled every four, five years, basically. So. If you fund doubled your money and held it for four or five years it, it just did as well as the s and p five hundred and then yeah and and then often investors didn't make that calculation and and um then then get a bit uh, puzzled so they they it, it's uh, the, the current way of reporting performance in private equity is, is a quite misleading and 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 b quite uh, low in terms of information content um if you don't know the duration it's useless to know the multiple uh and uh if you if there is intermediate dividend payments, it's quite useless to move the IR. So,
0: yeah. Ludovic, uh, you alluded to the, some of the potential for uh, private equity managers to distort or perhaps even actively manipulate IRR. Uh, Could you talk more about that and perhaps give a, an example?
1: When you use IRR as, as a performance measure, there, is, there, there are several ways um, uh, with which you can actively uh, manipulate this IRR. Again, it's not I'm not saying that they all do it or, or the majority d- does it, but it's good for investors to know that it is possible. Um, so, as I just mentioned, one thing you can do is that uh, you pay early some large dividends uh, and during the, the, the fund's life, and that's going to, if your fund ends up doing well, um, that's going to uh, dramatically uh, exacerbate your IR. So also something that is important is that the IR doesn't always, like, bias the performance upward. Uh, another uh, interesting thing is that it exaggerates performance, but in both ways. So if you're a poor performer uh, and you did some large early distributions, the IR is going to exacerbate downward your performance. So you might end up with an IR of minus 50%, while in fact, you just did minus 10. Uh, and if you did well, uh, you did maybe 15 in, re- in reality, and then the IR is going to be 50 uh, and um, so, so, so that's also important to keep in mind that IR exacerbates the, the, the perceived dispersion uh, across funds, and and so, so a fund that will end up doing okay if it pays some large dividends early, its IR is going to be uh, exaggerated, um, and uh, there are other ways to play with IRs, which which are like uh, grouping the funds together uh, that can help. So if, if if, some, if, if a firm, for example, uh, a private equity firm would have had some good successes in the 80s and not so good in the 90s, by pulling every fund together and then showing the AR or the anti-track record would typically show a very good figure, uh, because no matter what you do in the 90s, uh, your dividends that you paid in the 1980s are assumed to have been invested at very high rates of returns, so no matter what happens in the 90s, this keeps on getting compounded and then you end up you, you're still looking good no matter what you did in the 90s uh, and if you are in the opposite situation uh, you can also compute some time zero IRs and still look good um, so there are lots of ways by which if you are using IR you can, you, you can uh, look good you, 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 you know, if, you, if your track record is very poor it is very hard to do anything about it but, but if it's an okay okay plus track record you can make it look amazing if, if you, if you so, Ludovic, what would you use in place of IRR? The answer would be investor-tailored. So, so each investor would have a different um, metric to be used because it will depend on this investor situation because the key thing is how do you reinvest the dividends, at what rate you manage to reinvest these intermediary dividends, and uh, what is your cost of capital for your outflows, and so on. So, so it's tough to give one universal answer. Nonetheless, Uh, we can do something um, to prevent uh, manipulation or to make it very difficult to manipulate. So we can improve things a lot but still not get a a perfect answer. So what we can do to improve things quite a lot is to impose for each investment that a modified IR is reported. So the modified IR is quite simple. It says... You have invested uh, in, in something. If you do multiple investments, I assume that you draw these extra cash flows from a money account. And, and the dividends you pay on the way, I assume you reinvest them at a given rate. Now, this rate, we have to choose one. Uh, to make it comparable across funds, I suggest uh, two rates as possible. The first reinvestment rate would be 8%, uh, because 8% is the hurdle rate that most funds use. And so, implicitly, if you use 8% as a hurdle rate, you mean that this is your benchmark, and so it seems quite natural to assume that you reinvest all the dividends at the benchmark rate. Um, And the other one that seems quite natural would be like the S&P 500. You assume that all the dividends go to the S&P 500 index, and then when the investment is closed, you look at how much money is left on the account, both the S&P 500 account or the one that earned 8%, and how much is uh, the private equity fund uh, giving. And then you report that modified IR along with the duration, the total duration of this investment, which is now trivial to compute because it's just the date of the first investment, the date of the last dividend, and the spread between the two is the duration. And so if you have a prospectus that just says, okay, here are all the modified IRs calculated either with 8% flat or with the S&P 500, and here is the exact duration of all the investments, you would have done a huge uh, improvement Uh, in terms of performance reporting, because also duration can be manipulated. eh? So some funds uh, say, for example, they report a duration, but then there is a footnote somewhere that says, well, that's the date of the first exit. So if I do an investment and I hold it for eight years, after one year I give a dividend, and I report a duration of one year because that's the date of the first exit. That obviously doesn't make any sense. Then I have a multiple of two, which looks good because duration is one year, but in fact it was eight, right? So... Um, if we do this modifier, IR, we're going to help not only uh, the, the to, to, uh, to um, improve the flows of the IR, but we will also help uh, the calculation of duration that will become very clear and very transparent as well.
0: So past performance in private equity uh, has been fantastic, uh, at least when you listen to the press. Uh, a lot of times the press doesn't give any details on the performance measures used or how they were calculated, and you've already alluded to some of the problems associated with IRR. What other issues can come into play to distort returns?
1: There, there are basically two kinds of, of, of uh, press uh, newspaper articles. So the, the first kind is somebody just saying, you know, bus performance is great and let's see what's up with, you know, firing people or whatever. Uh, and and they don't justify why they think, like, performance uh, has been great. and. Oftentimes, uh, if, if if you ask the journalist or if they, if they put uh, a kind of justification, they would just say, oh, you know, Google had whatever return, Microsoft had whatever return, uh, Yahoo had whatever return. These returns are close to infinity, right? So they're <laughs> really, really big. And then they say, and in buyouts, you know, I have, I've seen the example of Time Warner where, where they got all the money back after one year and then... then kintopled it after the IPO or whatever. And so, you know, it's got to be amazing returns. It's got to be. Uh, and, and, and so there is this, this thing that we see also with stocks, with people getting excited by growth stocks. Uh, you always have some that will have amazing performance, but it's a very skewed uh, business. It's like a lottery ticket. You have 10 guys who won the lottery, but the key question is how many bought the tickets and, and didn't win. So... Um, So that's that's, that's one problem that that you observe a a few winners and then then you you imagine that it must be uh, uh, a cash cow and and you assume returns are high. And 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 then the other kind of articles that does try to give a justification, they typically uh, take IRs uh, given by industry associations uh, and then compare them to an equally weighted average across time of the stock market index. And, and the two are not comparable. Um, the, the private equity were more invested in certain periods of time, less in others. Uh, if you just look at the average S&P 500 over 20 years, you, you would assume that they were in, invested the same amount throughout 20 years. And, and it's not how the private equity lo- industry looks like. There was a big peak in the late 90s, and, and, and that is quite dramatic. So if you just compare average stock market returns with IRs of uh, equalized across or average across vintages or things like that. It's just me comparing apples and and oranges. And it it could turn out that private equity is is above, or it could turn out that it's below when in fact it's above, and so you would would make mistakes either way. Fees uh, certainly have a lot to do with an investor's actual
0: experience. What would you say about uh, fees in the private equity world? What I would say
1: about fees is that uh, fees are pretty high, uh, which is in itself might not be a problem. Uh, You you know, if somebody gives you very high performance, uh, that person deserves uh, lots of uh, reward. That's that's, that's not a a problem. But the part that is very high in the fees is the fixed part. And and that's a bit uh, surprising. Uh, And investors might not always realize that, in fact, in terms of fixed fees, They may pay anything between like 3% per year to 5% per year. And that looks um, quite a large amount if you compare to any other asset class. Um, The other thing that is a bit surprising about the fees is that the incentive part uh, kicks in very quickly. And sometimes it can end up that a fund just returns the inflation to you, uh, the inflation rate, and would still get incentive fees being paid. Now it, it happens in some um, a bit twisted scenarios, but it can happen, and and that 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 is a bit surprising. Uh, if a fund returns just the S&P 500, for example, well, you might think it's it's good enough, but uh, it's it, you 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 would pay like a two percent fee a year for for getting the S&P 500, right? So the way the fees work is that. For the incentive part, you get, if it, it, once the 8% holder rate is crossed, which would be the case with the S&P 500 because the return has been roughly 12% a year, so you cross the 8% holder rate, and what you pay in terms of fees is 20% above zero. So if a fund gives you 12%, uh, you have to pay 2% of 12%, uh, which is a bit more than 2% per year. And if you add that to the 4% or so of fixed fees, you already be on six. Uh, and there are tons of details and extra fees that people have to pay that can bring you to something like 10% a year, uh, which, is, which is dramatic. It's, 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 uh, I, I don't know if other asset classes charging so much. Um, again, in itself, charging 10% a year, I don't mind. If somebody delivers you 30% rate of returns, charging 10% is okay. Uh, the problem is this 10% might be paid even if someone just returns to you uh, the S&P 500. And, 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 and that's uh, a bit uh, uh, surprising and, and investors need to be aware of that, of that and especially need to be aware that in the details of the contracts there are very important uh, covenants and, and clauses that, makes it, uh, that can make this fee bill change quite dramatically. Uh, they are, uh, the fee contracts are long and complex and uh, they all have 220 as a, as a first step and so people think, oh, okay, they all charge the same uh, but at the end of the day, uh, there are lots of very details in, in, in various details in the contracts so that means that uh, some investors would end up paying 4% a year and some investors would end up paying 10% a year and that's a huge uh, difference.
0: Ludovic, you've uh, spent quite a bit of time looking under the hood uh, of private equity returns. What last tip might you give uh, to an analyst or an investor who's sitting down with a uh, private equity
1: prospectus? If you do not uh, know very well this asset class, you should just not walk in um, just like that. You should not you know, run a mean variance analysis, get us an answer that you need to allocate 5% of your portfolio to private equity, and then that corresponds to, let's say, $500 million. and then decide, okay, I'm going to invest $500 million in, in private equity, and you get these prospectuses saying IR is 50%, and here you go, you, you send your $500 million. But, but, but that would be a, a, a very big mistake. Um, you need to know very well mister Set-class, and if you don't know it very well, you then need to, to select a good fund of funds, and, and, which is also a similar problem. Uh, funds of funds uh, do uh, charge you money for, for their service, and they vary in quality. And so now you have to t- select a fund, which might be easier to, than to select a fund, but still, uh, it's quite difficult. So in, if you are acquainted with this asset class, um, it, it, um, what, you, what you need to, 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 uh, to keep on uh, doing is reading entirely the prospectuses, look at all the covenants into these, in these three contracts, because a lot of them, uh, can hurt you very badly, if things, especially when things go bad. And uh, it's, it's a fight, it's tedious, it takes lots of time, but, but you have to do that. You need to look at the details of the contracts.
0: Ludovic, thank you very much for joining us and for several uh, interesting insights. And uh, if you'd like to learn more on this topic, be sure to visit our Lifelong Learning Resources Center in the Member Resources area of our website. Thank you for joining us for this Take 15 video webcast. Copyright 2008 CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.